This is an ABC podcast. This is Science Friction. Welcome. I'm Natasha Mitchell. For the first few years, you know, we had security guards patrolling our trials. We had guard dogs running around the perimeter. We had big high fences with CCTV. And the whole thing was genuinely stressful. Today on the show, GM, genetically modified foods, why they are back on the menu and what it could mean for your dinner plate. So to start, let's wind the clock back two or so decades. You never knew if you were going to come in on Monday morning and discover that somebody had broken into your trial compound. And and, and that happened at least once, not with my project, but with another project. Professor Jonathan Napier's research is kind of fishy. Well, in as much as he's genetically engineering plants to contain essential omega-3 fatty acids, the kind you find in fish. So although we talk about them as omega-3 fish oils, they don't contain fish genes. They contain genes from algae because omega-3 fish oils are actually made by algae and fish accumulate them through their diet in the oceans. And omega-3 fatty acids are essential in our diets too, especially for our cardiovascular health, but... Contrary to popular belief, there is not plenty more fish in the sea. Also, you know, it's another tragedy of global proportion that our oceans are, are polluted and full of junk. You know, that means stuff that we extract out of the oceans, like fish, fish oil, fish meal, are also subject to concerns about pollution. So, you know, you don't have to worry about that anymore if you're making marine ingredient like fish oils, but you're making it on the land in plants. And to do this, Jonathan and his team at Rothamsted Research in the UK, which is said to be the longest running agricultural research institute in the world, have been taking genes from one species and inserting them into the genome of another. So we've put seven genes from algae into our plants and that then gives the plants the capacity to make the omega-3 fish oils, EPA and DHA. And it's taken decades to get these GM plants right. When he started this project in the mid-1990s, though, anti-GM activism and widespread scepticism about genetically modified organisms, or GMOs, made this kind of work unpopular. He says field trials of GM crops all but stopped and the big money for this research from the EU dried up because of community views. Jonathan's team did eventually get the go-ahead for its field trials, and he went on to become a well-known advocate for the benefits of GM crops. Right. Fast forward now to now, and rules around genetically engineered crops are changing rapidly. At the heart is a change in the definition of what is a GM crop and what isn't. Now, is this just a case of scientists kind of limboing around old controversies and the laws governing their work, or has the science and public attitudes to it fundamentally changed too? Do you have concerns that there has been a lack of public consultation? Definitely. We've been arguing for a long time that we need to be engaging the public early as this technology is developing and not waiting until the products come to market, because by then it's too late. Simon Burrell is a senior associate with the UK charity called Involve, and he also sits on the UK's Nuffield Council on Bioethics. He wants to see much more robust and sophisticated public consultation around evolving technologies like genetic engineering. 
I would argue that the debate about GMOs was held very firmly on the territory of the benefits that were purported to come from GMOs and the safety of the technology. But what different publics wanted to talk about was whether this product around, you know, tomatoes that looked better and stayed fresher for longer were really the sorts of things we should be spending money on and, and they wanted in the market versus other things. So it's not just about the potential benefits. We have to be also thinking about those costs and the benefits are going to be accruing to certain groups and the costs may well accrue to others. And the, and the question for a democracy is how do you balance those trade-offs? And the other urgent question for democracy right now is how do you get scientists to hear public concerns in this era of fake news and mistruths? Professor Cathy Martin is on a mission. I've always been fascinated by plants. I guess as a kid I wasn't so fascinated by plants. And that kid grew up to become a leading plant scientist based at the John Innes Centre in the UK. And I think I realised about 20 years ago that actually plant science can do an amazing number of things. We have technologies to engineer plants that could be really useful. And that's often forgotten or missed by medics or, or nutritionists. So it became a kind of a mission to get people to understand the benefits of plant science for nutrition. Her team has just developed a tomato with a difference. It's been genetically tweaked to contain the vital provitamin D3, which is a precursor of vitamin D3, which our body normally makes when it's exposed to the sun's UVB rays. But vitamin D deficiency is a real problem globally. It's not just a vitamin, it's recently become realised that it's also a hormone. Deficiencies are associated with depression, dementia, Parkinson's disease and all types of cancer except for skin cancer. So, Such a vital vitamin. Absolutely. And of course, you don't get it from plants. And with more and more people becoming vegan or adopting a very plant-rich diet, vitamin D deficiency is only going to get worse. In a paper published last year in the journal Nature, her team reported that just one of the tweaked Tommies has the equivalent vitamin D3 of two eggs or 28 grams of tuna. And the leaves of the modified plant are especially rich in vitamin D3 as well. So given that these are usually chucked out during cultivation, this points to the promise of producers being able to sell those leaves for the production of vitamin supplements. So our next step is to see whether the plants grown outside with exposure to sunlight can convert the provitamin D3 to vitamin D3. And that experiment is just starting. As soon as the bank holiday is over, the plants will go outside. Now, until April of last year, getting those field trials approved would have taken a very long time, up to two years, in fact, after a whole lot of jumping through regulatory hoops. UK law required a thorough risk assessment, amongst other things. This time, though, it took us two days to get that permission to grow them outside following the change in the law. Yes, two years down to just two days. A lot has changed in a short amount of time. We didn't have to have armed guards or uh, even grow them in containment. We simply had to provide notification of the changes that had been made and then they could be grown outside. So how has this change come about? Well, here's the new twist 
Kathy wouldn't describe the tomato they've created as genetically modified or manipulated. And now neither does the law in England. And that's because her tomatoes are no longer classified as GM. They're classified as GE, gene-edited tomatoes. And this is where things have got really interesting. Australia, by the way, changed its Gene Technology Act in a similar way back in 2019, just before the pandemic. And now England is catching up. Gene editing it needs to be differentiated from genetic manipulation. So if I were to talk about GM, I mean introducing genes from other organisms, whereas gene editing is modifying genes which exist in an organism. This is Michael Jones, Professor of Agricultural Biotechnology at Murdoch University, where he's also been Director of the WA State Agricultural Biotechnology Centre for three decades now. He and colleagues are using the newer suite of gene editing techniques to create drought-resistant wheat, low GI, glycemic index, potatoes, and reduce the cancer risk associated with deep-frying potatoes for chips and things. So gene editing really is an accelerated form of plant breeding. It does the sort of things that you could do in plant breeding, but faster. Now, you might remember when I had Berkeley biologist Jennifer Doudner on Science Friction. You can search our podcast archive for that one. She shared a Nobel Prize for co-developing the new gene editing technique called CRISPR. And it has been a blockbuster in labs worldwide because scientists now use CRISPR and its related techniques to more easily, more quickly, more precisely edit an organism's genes. You can think of it as kind of like a pair of molecular scissors attached to a guide that finds just the bit of DNA they want to target and snip, cuts into it. There's a subset of edits, which are called nature-equivalent gene edits, which are small deletions, usually small deletions. They can be insertions only of the same DNA as the host. So they can be small changes that could have occurred naturally. And those kind of tiny localised edits made using CRISPR can be used to disable a gene or knock it out, as scientists say, basically stop it working. And this type of edit in crops was no longer classified as a genetically modified organism. There is no way of detecting whether a gene-edited mutation has been produced by gene editing or has occurred naturally. So the idea that you have to have some special oversight of something that you can't... I mean, in the US, they just said, well, we're not going to regulate gene edits because we can't detect them. So I, I'm not sure what the, the issue is. I want my food to be regulated so that it's safe. So to clarify, Kathy's lab didn't add any genes from another species of plant or animal to the tomato genome, or even genes from another tomato variety. They just edited its DNA in such a way that one particular gene was switched off, which in turn allowed provitamin D3 to be boosted in the tomato, and no other aspects of the tomato's growth was affected. Jonathan Napier's omega-3 rich plants that we heard about earlier, on the other hand, had seven genes from algae inserted into them. So they will still be classified and restricted as GM under British law. 
my omega-3 project is always and always will be a GM project because you can't do it using gene editing. You couldn't use plant breeding or any other traditional method to introduce the DNA from my algae into the plant. I can only do that by GM. So if you like, that's why I talk about it as foreign DNA, which makes it sound slightly odd, but it's like it's it's DNA that's, that's coming from a, a source that you wouldn't normally find in a plant. It's still DNA. I mean, DNA is DNA is DNA, irrespective I mean, of what species it is. Exactly. It's the same stuff. It, exactly. It always does my head in when people talk about tomato DNA or potato DNA. I mean, DNA is just, it's just a chemical molecule. But it does, you know, if I said to you, well, actually, my GM plants, I'm using genes I've taken from fish as opposed to from algae, there is a perception thing. Now, in terms of gene editing, I mean, you're right, it's a manipulation, same as GM is a manipulation, but the difference is it's removing something as opposed to adding something. And in the case of GM, you're adding something that is also that you wouldn't normally find delivered by by natural processes. Now you can argue as and you know, I think that's what you're alluding to is that well, you know, both of those are genetic manipulations. They're changing the genome. And that's true. I think the thing to bear in mind is this, and I sometimes hear people talk about this who especially people who are uh, anti-GM genetic modification in any form. They have this idea of the genome as being some, uh, it's like a religious text, you know, it's sacrosanct. That's not the way genomes are organized. And it's something that has some core components that we all share. And then there's variation in a population that is actually responsible for the differences that we see. That's why everybody looks different. You can have variation in a genome and still be a potato or whatever it is. So there's this distinction being made between gene edited plants and genetically modified plants. Genetically modified plants are still to be regulated as genetically modified organisms under existing legislation. But isn't this a sort of game of semantics? Is this a case of scientists working to distance yourselves from the heated debates over GM in the past that started off in the 80s, really, in the UK and were very, very heated and very, very difficult. Whether you insert a gene, delete a gene, slightly modify just a tiny little sequence of genetic material, you are still modifying a plant's genome in some way. That's a genetic modification. <laughs> well, yes, but we've been doing that since the start of civilization because genetic modification in terms of breeding and selection has been done by humans since the development of of cultivars of cereals. Wheat could only have been created by human intervention. All plant breeding is genetic manipulation. Plant scientist Professor Michael Jones. When you make, you try to introduce a gene from a, a wild species that's going to be useful to give a resistance to a pest or a disease. That's all genetic manipulation. Transferring chunks of genes from rye into wheat, which was done a century ago, that's genetic manipulation. So, I mean, all our food is genetic manipulated unless you eat bush, bush tucker. Mutation breeding, which is, uses chemical mutagens or irradiation, now that's never been regulated. And what there are 3,000 varieties for sale, from things from seedless oranges to ruby red grapefruit, which are produced by irradiation. And what does that do? That makes double-stranded breaks in DNA all over the genome, you don't know what you're doing, and then you try and pick ones which are have a useful character. Jonathan Napier. 
but usually that's a completely scattergun approach and generates thousands and thousands of mutations in a very imprecise way. So using gene editing to precisely change just the gene that you're interested in gives you a level of precision that we've never had before. And to me, that's the exciting opportunity that gene editing delivers to to plant breeding. The technology itself is neutral, whether it's genetic modification or gene editing. It's just what you do with it. Plant scientist Cathy Martin. I understand that people might think that we're playing God, but I want there to be choice. So if people want healthier food and they don't mind the fact that it was designed by someone rather than arising naturally, then let them have it. The changed regulations in England and in Australia mean research into and trials of gene-edited crops where no new genes have been inserted can now go ahead with very little regulation. But what if Cathy Martin wanted to take her fortified tomato beyond field trials and if they found it works, on to testing into humans, perhaps eventually to the market? At the moment, we're not able to uh, taste or do any feeding studies, human studies with the tomatoes that are grown outside because the changes in law are simply for field trials. But after Brexit, England is no longer beholden to the EU's traditionally more precautionary, restrictive regulations of GM products. And so a bill called the Genetic Technology Precision Breeding Bill was tabled in the UK Parliament last year. Now, if it gets through, it will lower the regulatory barriers and the often huge costs involved in human trials and commercialisation of gene-edited crops. Michael Jones says similar shifts in regulation in Australia and other parts of the world have had a dramatic and immediate impact. So we've seen that actually in Argentina, where they're five years ahead of us. For 20 years, when they only had GM plants, more than 90% of all manipulated crops were for multinationals. And since gene-edited products have come along and been deregulated, now something like 60% are local companies, public research. The rest are mainly small SMEs, small companies, with only 9% now as multinationals. So it's completely democratised the ability to use these sorts of technologies. The proponents of gene editing make big promises of crops that are drought resistant, pest and pesticide resistant, nutritionally enhanced, allergen free, a solution to the global food security crisis in the face of global warming and wars. But there are never just benefits. There are always costs and always trade-offs. Simon Burrell sits on the UK's Nuffield Council on Bioethics and is Program Director with ScienceWise. And together these organisations are currently running a public consultation into the ethical and welfare issues of using gene editing on farm animals. So to breed, for example, hornless cows or disease-resistant pigs. But here he's speaking wholly in his capacity with an organisation called Involve. And he believes the public has been poorly consulted before the softening of laws governing gene editing. There has been very limited public engagement around gene editing, genome editing. There have been obviously surveys. um, So there's been more what we would call extractive public engagement, where you're trying to understand at a surface level what public perspectives on the technology is. Um, But there has been very, very limited um, engagement on the technology itself in the UK, but also actually globally. 
Is there a sense that if scientists and politicians can't control the discussion, then it's too risky and, and not worth having? And scientists certainly don't want to risk their work being shut down altogether, and that's that's often the fear, isn't it? And this bill that has been introduced is, in fact, about liberating this science from regulation. Yes, absolutely. But if the, the assumption that you can close down this debate is completely fallacious because this debate is happening already and the debate will happen. It will be driven by civil society who either wants it to happen, farmers groups, or don't want it to happen, religious groups and so on. All of these groups will be talking about it, raising support, beginning the debate. So you can't shut this debate down. And indeed, if you if you try and shut it down, what you do is you, is you narrow the terms of the debate. Um, and it means that the public can't be properly informed about it. So this is precisely the moment that we should be starting to engage, starting to support publics, to understand the technology, think through the implications, think about where the red lines lie. Because if we don't, then the debate will start as products start coming onto the shelves of supermarkets. And it's there that the point may come where the publics begin to reject it. Of course, you have to have a social licence. Plant scientist Michael Jones. But one of the problems is that people make up without understanding the science, will make up their, their mind about something without really understanding what it is they've made up their mind about. But Simon Burrell, who runs public participation processes, argues that many citizens want to consider a technology like gene editing in a, a much wider context and that their capacity to discuss scientific complexity shouldn't be underestimated. There have been well over 70 public dialogues, deliberative processes run by a government program called ScienceWise that have covered a whole range of technologies, including genomic medicine, synthetic biology, a whole set of things where publics have demonstrated very clearly they're able to contribute very thoughtfully to these sorts of conversations. So that the first thing is policymakers think that public aren't interested. Second, they think they can't understand both of those things are not true. So what would a, a more genuine or what would a an effective public consultation around gene editing in the food supply look like? It would not focus on the technology, but it would focus on the food system as a whole and what a collective vision is. It's not just in terms of the kind of safe and secure provision of food, but its impact on the environment, on the landscape, on the economy, on affordability, the role of the technology alongside many other technologies, because this technology can't solve all the problems. So it has to be in that on that much wider canvas. You can imagine, though, a scientist going, oh, my God, do we have to? when they've, they've got their head buried in the scientific detail, to kind of open it up to the whole complex chain of questions that surround the sustainability and future of our food supply feels overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. And in, and in many ways, I'm not sure it's the responsibility of the scientists. In fact, I think it's the responsibility of politicians and civil servants to be doing that. And I can absolutely understand why they feel overwhelmed. It doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. And indeed, when scientists step out of their their role where their expertise is clear and into roles where, they're ex- where they have no ex- more expertise than any other member of the public. That's where problems start. The dissent around GM crops was never just about the technology. It was also about the way in which the technology was being utilised by large agribusiness players like Monsanto 
about equity of access, about farmers having control over their destiny, over their farming practices. It was a critique of the technological fix to much more complex problems like soil health and fertility and sustainable farming and agribusiness models, global equity, all of those things. So, no, absolutely. No, you know, sure. citizens are always going to have nuanced, nuanced response to a technology. I think I do wonder whether scientists sometimes underestimate the capacity of citizens to engage. Oh, well, I'm sure you're right, because I think although a lot of scientists would sort of rail against the being characterized as operating out of ivory towers, I think a lot of them do. Technology has to have some use and have some benefit for people to accept new technology. In the case of GM 20 years ago, I don't think that argument was made at all well. I think that if you like, the lesson maybe that we've learnt boils down to explaining the why as opposed to the how of it is that you're doing. Why are you trying to make omega-3 fish oils in plants? Then maybe, then just maybe, you're starting off down the road in, in, in better shape than just saying, here it is, suck it up, uh, it, you know, you like it or lump it. Labs all over the world are doing lots of brilliant basic discovery research. You know, that's all great. But actually, you know, what we need, we need things to help us overcome the global challenges we're facing, whether it's to do with nutrition, whether it's to do with climate change. We need solutions and we need them really quickly because, you know, we are facing some really serious, serious challenges. And more info on the Science Friction website where you can email me as well or you can tweet me over at Natasha Mitchell on Twitter. Science Friction is produced by myself and Lisa Needham. And uh, thanks for listening. Tell your friends about the podcast. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.